do this a little bit more frequently, but we haven't done it for a while, and it's, a, uh, it's called A World Today. And it's partially because there's been a lot of kind of crazy things happening in the world recently, um, but also because it's very important for us as Christians to know how to actually engage with the world around us. And so I wanted to highlight a couple things that have been happening uh, around the world for us to kind of consider and think about. Um, I guess closest to home, I probably what's most uh, on our minds right now is, is uh, actually the situation with British leadership. Uh, we are, we are un, unpowered participants in the arrival of the next prime minister in this country. In other words, we can sit and we can watch from afar. We can see the debate, but actually we have very little power in actually deciding who takes office. Unless you happen to be the neighbor of one of them and you can kind of hear something and then you can report that to the news. Aside from that, we have very little uh, power to influence them. And actually the decision is coming down to the Conservative Party uh, on who the next Prime Minister will be. Uh, Theresa May has already said that she is not going to be there, uh, which means her role at the G20 has been essentially a lame duck kind of process uh, because it will probably most likely be one of these two, uh, Jeremy Hunt and uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, and because we as uh, citizens or uh, permanent residents of this country, uh, we don't actually know them. We probably haven't had very many conversations with them. We can only rely on what we've read in the newspaper. And of course, those will be the most flammable or most insight, uh, insightful, not necessarily insightful uh, kind of comments about them. Um, and, of course, we may have uh, the experience of what they've done previously with uh, Boris in terms of his role uh, with foreign uh, affairs and, at the same time, with Jeremy Hunt with his uh, excellent work with the education system and then the NHS. So, obviously, we will all have strong opinions about uh, how effective they were in both of these areas and how we feel about them as uh, possible prime ministers in this country. But probably what's most frustrating for us is that, actually... Um, we can't really do anything about it. Um, and if for us as Christians, the question becomes, okay, well, what do we do in these kind of situations? Like, I mean, we're, we're not really voting. Uh, we can kind of read the news. We can kind of be upset about it. But actually, for a lot of us, it just feels very helpless or feels very pointless. And I won't admit, even sometimes, uh, you get the sense of, like, what's the point anyways? Whoever's chosen, like, what kind of changes will really be made? Uh, and what kind of power do we have in that? Uh, whoever will be the next prime minister will have strong influence in actually what happens with Brexit, uh, which happens with uh, the uh, foreign policy, with how we deal with uh, immigrants as well as refugees, uh, even has to do with how we will deal with even things like HS2 and the education and the NHS. So all these things come into play. But for us as Christians, we still stand and kind of think, well, what can we do? Maybe we can pray about it, but what are we praying for? Does God even work in these kind of situations? And we immediately begin to feel like, well, okay, well, we'll just see what happens. Another really big thing that's happening in the news right now is uh, the fact that there is a big heat wave. Uh, uh, we experienced uh, the fullness of that heat wave yesterday, and today is back to normal British summer. Um, but we know in France, I think it went up to 45 degrees, uh, which is Dubai territory. Uh, that is pretty hot. Um, but, of course, we also know that part of this is uh, what they say is most likely down to climate change, uh, which, again, we might know about, we might hear about, and as Christians, we feel some responsibly towards. But the question is, what can we actually do about it? Um, I guess we say recycle. Um, if you can, if you're willing to, become vegan. But for many of us, that is a sacrifice too great for us to bear. Um, there's questions about... Uh, donating money so you can save the oceans or trying to buy uh, things that are not so toxic or just trying to reduce waste or biking to church. But for a lot of that, even then, it still feels like, well, I'm just one person. Is it really going to make that much of a difference? This is slightly more things for us to do as opposed to the Tory elect choosing of the next prime minister, right? We have no power in that. But for climate change, there is a sense that we do have some power but it feels so small, like less than a drop in a bucket. And the changes that we might see, you know, might not happen within our lifetime. And it only works if really the governments get behind it or people in charge get behind it. And we are just small citizens in this kind of story. 
And again, that feeling of, well, what's the point? Can we really do anything about it? The last kind of topic I want to look at is actually what's been happening in Hong Kong. And as you know, the news cycle goes along. Um, uh, a couple weeks ago, we heard about the million people who went out to protest. And then uh, later, it was two million people. And Hong Kong showed up in the news. And the extradition bill showed up in the news. And people were talking about there was more excitement here. There's a protest in New York City. There was a protest down in London about trying to say, well, we want Britain should take back their responsibility in the role with Hong Kong. And yet, here we are a week later. Hong Kong's not really in the news anymore. Uh, but it's funny because actually the protests are still going on. This was just this week. Uh, flashlight protests, they called it. Uh, and they were trying to get more attention in terms of uh, the G20 countries and trying to have people say, uh, these countries, you should say something about this. You should speak up to China about this. Uh, even though China said, we don't want to talk about um, There's still this thing where people were out there, thousands of people still out protesting peacefully, uh, trying to demonstrate and make some noise about it. And on one hand, you saw that that first protest made some effect. Uh, they withheld or they withdrew uh, the extradition thing for a bit, for more discussion. But it didn't completely change the situation. And apart from that, you still get the feeling, you know, what's the point, right? I mean, China's going to do what China's going to do. You know, President Xi's going to do what he's going to do. I mean, you can't, like, are we really, I mean, fine, let's say they, they get rid of Kerry and they put a new person in charge, but they're just going to be a, a person that's put there by the Chinese government. The bill will get passed eventually. Even if you want to wait till 20 years, still, what's the point? And it can be very difficult for us to say, even as Christians, you know, can we, can we make a difference? Our, our question really is, and we look at all the things going on in the world, is, is it really pointless? Is there really any point for us to keep trying? What is it really for us as Christians to try to make an impact? Now, I think when we start asking them, well, what can we do? We start getting more frustrated because it's like, well, I guess I can't do very much. Like, I'm not sure I can really impact people the way I would like to. And I think what really comes down to is sometimes we feel like, well, I'm just one person, or I'm just a student, or I'm just a teacher, and I, I don't really have the power to make this kind of change. And I think the other thing that we say is, well, I guess we could pray about it, but then we start saying, well, what can we pray? Is God really going to make a difference? Can God really change this situation? And then we stop praying. We don't know how to pray. And this is where it becomes very dangerous, because at this point you're saying, actually, I don't think God is power enough, powerful enough to change these situations. The God that you believe in is not big enough to transform this world, so I'm not even going to pray. I'm just going to live my middle-class life and just be comfortable and happy where I am and just let the world go on as is, and then when I die, that's it. I die. See, that's a really dangerous position for us to be in, where we are comfortable where we are, where we have a decent job, where we have a decent kind of housing and living situation, that we just say, well... I'm not big enough to make a difference, and it's not, I'm not small enough where it's actually going to affect me seriously. So I don't even need to pray about it. I need to talk to God about it. If we are living in that zone, or if we're living in that place, we are in big trouble because you, are, you have lost sight of actually who God is and what your responsibility as a Christian is. And that's what we're going to look at and think about a little bit today. We're going to start, and we're going to look actually today primarily at one passage. It's going to be Acts chapter 9. And I want to unfold a little bit what's happening here. If you've been in church before, you're a Christian, it's actually the testimony of uh, the Apostle Paul, how he became a Christian, actually. And he has a horrendous background, and that's what we're going to hear about first. So before he was called Paul, he was called Saul. And Acts chapter 9, uh, starting from verse 1, says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, this is standard persecution. This happens today, the same kind of situation. This happens in China. This happens in Iraq. This happens anywhere where Christianity is outlawed or banned. What they do is they say, can I get a, an official order? Can they go to the police? Can you give me the right to go to this place and arrest the people there or kill them or shoot them or harass them or make them leave? 
Uh, this happens in China now where they will go to a place where they know that Christians are worshiping and say, well, you're not allowed to worship here. Or they'll call the police and say, can you go and shut these people down? This is exactly what Saul is doing. He's saying, look, I hate these Christian people. I hate these people following the way of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to get official authority to go there and shut these things down. Now, he was already active in this. He was, uh, he was there when they actually stoned a person to death, and he looked on approvingly. He was high-ranking. He was uh, well-known, and actually he was influential. He's enough to be able to go to the high priest there and say, give me the right to go there, and I will go there and shut them down. Now, you have to understand, for a guy like Saul, how do you get to this point where you are so angry that you think it's okay to kill someone else or to arrest them for their belief? In our modern day and age, that's called radicalized, right? If someone's radicalized, they're going to do this. Um, it could be a white supremacist. It could be uh, what we say, Muslim terrorist. It could be a fundamentalist, anyone. And what we have here is Saul in the same kind of place. He is so angry and so adamant that the people who are Christians are doing the wrong thing that he is so passionate that he just believes he needs to kill them. Like that's the only rightful thing that should happen to them. But, of course, the story goes on, and it's kind of amazing what happens. Um, as he neared Damascus on his journey, so he's going there with this official letter so he can arrest Christians. Uh, suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Saul? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. At this point, Saul is heading to Damascus. This bright light ends up blinding him, and he hears this voice. And he says, oh, who are, who are you, Lord? Who are you that's speaking to me? And he says, I'm Jesus, the person that you're persecuting. This encounter, this moment, transforms Saul's life so much that he ends up turning away from the life of killing people to eventually becoming the Apostle Paul, where he is giving his life, willing to die, to save other people. What you start realizing is that Jesus has the power to transform lives. Jesus saves. He, like, completely turns a situation around. I think about the people, the Christians at that time, the people who are following Jesus, and they're trying to follow Jesus and love him. When they hear about a guy like Saul, what do you think they think about? Like, you know, like, oh, God, you know. Um, I w- this is my prayer. My prayer would be like, God, can you, like, kill him or can you stop him? Can you prevent him from coming near us because he is dangerous and he is evil? And, you know, we don't want him here to disrupt our church service. You know, we just keep him away from us. I mean, that's how I would pray because, to me, I would want to preserve what we have here. I want to want to be in a safe environment. But actually, the Christians out there, you get the feeling, must have thought about it a little bit differently. For them, they would be thinking, well, actually, could someone even like Saul be saved? Would you be able to pray for him and say, actually, God, will you turn this person's life around? Because, Jesus, you are the way. Because, Jesus, you are so good. If you really believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is so good, that he transformed lives, then you begin to realize, actually, what he wants to do in your life is very different. Look what he does here. He takes this guy, Saul. Jesus takes this guy, Saul, who is murderous who is so angry, who is radicalized, and he turns him around completely. That Jesus is the same Jesus that saves you. Do you understand? That Jesus is the same one that called you out of darkness. Jesus didn't call you to be saved so that you can be the same kind of person you were before you were a Christian. He calls you so that you can be transformed. In fact, the purpose of that is so that you can understand and you can experience how great it is to be transformed. Our problem is we only like to be transformed a little bit and with what's comfortable. We don't want to let God say, actually, God, completely turn me around. What if Saul met Jesus and said, oh, yeah, actually, I really believe in you now. Um, So I'm not going to kill people anymore. I, I won't arrest them. I'm just going to hang out with them, but it's, that's all I'm going to do. Like, that was the extent of his transformation. And he didn't go out and preach. He didn't go out and proclaim. He didn't write any letters that ended up in the Bible. He just like, well, I'll just do what's comfortable. Because that's the kind of transformation that we have accepted for our own lives. God, thank you for letting me be a Christian that I can be in a comfortable and safe place. And I'm okay with that. Don't make me do anything else. I'm not sure that's what God desires from us. 
See, Jesus is in the business of transforming life, transforming our lives. We should not prevent him from doing that. I want to share a story about someone, um, and you may have heard me share about him before. Um, I will be, but um, a few years ago, uh, I came across this, this uh, documentary that was written about this guy, uh, Joshua Milton Blahi, and uh, it, it was such an interesting story that I said, oh, let me, let me buy this uh, documentary, and I'd like to show it. And we had a seminar talking about this. Uh, this guy, Joshua Milton Blahi, he is more known for being called General Butt Naked. Uh, the reason he's called General Butt Naked was because he was a very fearsome warlord during the Liberian Civil War. Um, by fearsome, I meant... He was responsible for killing thousands of people. He was a general in charge of them. And at this point, for him, he was, uh, he was mixed up in bad stuff. Witchcraft, um, he would sacrifice children. Um, and his big thing was he believed that Satan or evil powers protected him in battle. And so what he would do is he would raise children soldiers, and he would send them out with no clothes on, completely naked, uh, but armed, and he believed that they would fight so fiercely and they would. They were possessed. They were so angry. They were so brainwashed. They would go out uh, completely naked but armed with weapons and go out and slaughter villages and go out and kill people, children, women, um, all of this. And this is what he would do. And uh, there's one scene where he ends up finding a child and killing them on the spot and then ripping the heart out and eating it. This is how demented and crazy that this person was. And he believed that it was the evil that was helping him. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was, again, if I was a Christian in those places, I knew that he was kind of a warlord on the mad rampage. What would I be praying for? I would be praying for his death because if there's anyone that deserves to be killed by the judgment of the Lord, he is it, right? I mean, that would be everyone, all of us, our natural prayer. God, protect me and slaughter this guy because he is so evil. Will he die? Will you remove him from our lives? But there's a church out there, and actually what they were praying was the opposite. They were praying, Lord, will you let this person know that you are the truth? God, will you make him repent from his life so that he will follow you? I mean, that's what they were praying. And actually the pastor, I think he was so moved by the Holy Spirit that he actually went to general, uh, the general's compound, and he walked right through the front door and he went to him and he was shouting at him, you need to repent and you need to follow Jesus. You need to repent and follow Jesus. And he was so persistent and so, uh, like, so adamant that actually General Blah, he said, fine, fine, leave me alone. I repent and Jesus is my Lord. And then this man left. Now, at this point, the general, like, kind of like, what in the world just happened? And he bursts out of his front door, and he talks to his guard who was at the door. He said, why did you let that man in here? Why did you let that man here? And the guard was like, what man? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know who it is. I didn't see anyone that came in. And he said, I don't believe you. Dried him and shot him in both his kneecaps and threw him in a, in a closet to let him die. He was so angry. And then he didn't understand what happened. After this, what happened, um, the general, he started to even in that kind of repentant moment, God had gotten a hold of him. And he ended up repenting. And he ended up going and finding the man that he had left in the closet. And actually, the wounds had festered. Uh, and that guy was taken out to get cared for. He ends up in a wheelchair um, and meets General Butt-Naked again later. But what happens is he goes and he surrenders all his weapons and says, I am no longer going to work in this army. And he just goes off on his own. And in that process, he turns to God, starts learning it, and he eventually becomes an evangelist, becomes a minister out there. At the same time, I'm like thinking to myself, you know, like, this guy killed a lot of people. If I saw him as an evangelist or a minister, I would have my doubts. Like, I would have my serious doubts that this guy really follows Jesus. But he, his life gets turned around so much, he starts doing something else. He, um, he feels so convicted that he decides to go and try to find all the places and the people uh, and the families that he had left for dead, people who had lost their husbands or their children, and go and apologize to them, to ask for forgiveness for what he had done. Now, you don't, you don't do this unless you've been transformed by Jesus. You can, if you're out for your own goodness, you just pull out and that's it. You can just start your own like pseudo-church like Kanye West. But no, he wants to go and find them and say, I'm sorry for what I've done. 
And the movie, he actually goes and he finds this lady, and in the documentary, he's talking to her, and she's like, yeah, you killed my, 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 my husband uh, in front of me. And he says, I don't remember. I've killed so many people. But he says, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I've done. Will you forgive me for that? I don't know about you, but when I fight my wife, it's already hard enough to say sorry. But for me to know that actually I'm guilty of this, to go and say sorry to them, this is a power of Jesus. You understand, Jesus, when he transformed lives, can completely transform things. We have to really let Jesus say, oh, you know what, actually, Jesus, really transform me. Turn me away from that kind of life. A quote from him, he says, I'm a bit different from many people. Even though it is impossible, I still know that Jesus loves me. And he wipes his face with white color. When Jesus met me, I was wicked on the street and destroyed the life of an innocent child. And he called me son. There's a powerful scene where he actually, um, his, his friend that he shot in the kneecaps uh, ends up in a wheelchair. And he's talking to him. Uh, and he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry for the way I treat you. I'm so sorry for what I've done to you. And it's amazing because actually they end up still in this embrace. And you find this healing. This guy uh, in the Liberian Civil War eventually went to a war tribunal, and the war ended, and they had a whole list of the warlords, and they said, okay, all you warlords, you people are all uh, accused of atrocious crimes. You need to come and sit in this tribunal for us to judge you. Now, of course, at this point, the warlords all have their own little homes. They're all their little tribes. They're like, we're not going to your tribunal. We're innocent. We didn't really do anything. Only one guy shows up, General Blahi. He was already a revenant at this time. He does not have to go to this tribunal. He could just say, well, that's the past. But he goes there. He says, I have to go because I'm guilty and I should confess to the nation. And actually, his decision to do that actually brings so much healing to the place because they're like, well, actually, because while he's there and they're asking him, you know, how many people do you think you're guilty of killing? He says 20,000 people that he is responsible for the deaths of 20,000 people. And he goes knowing that actually he should be sentenced, and he is okay with that. He's willing to give that because he knows that actually that is what he is guilty of, and that's what he should do. In the end, because he goes and he confesses, because he is so open to it, they let him go, and they see that he's transformed. And you get this picture that actually Jesus really transforms lives. Jesus really transforms lives. Now, now, Two, two things here, right? Get a grip of this. If that's the power of Jesus, the first thing that you have to say is, gosh, the power of Jesus dwells in me. And here I am sitting around, hanging out with my old sins or my old life, and Jesus wants, no, no, not wants, can transform me in such a way that I do not have to still be a lazy like self-obsessed person, but I can say, actually, God, if you can transform a warlord like that, what can you do with me? Like, that's the first thing. The second thing then changes the way we pray. You know, you know, when we're praying, we're like, actually, God, can you transform the heart of, you know, some of these leaders in the world? Can you do amazing things in your life? Can you let them know just how great? Like, do you know how hard it is for me to pray, God, will you let President Trump Know your love so that he doesn't just have to love himself. You know, like, can you, can you, I, God, can you transform President Xi's heart so that he knows that, Jesus, you are the Lord and King? Like, this is how Constantinople ended up with Constantine being Christian. This is the prayers that transform people's lives because our God, Jesus, is incredible. When it says that he comes back from the dead, it's not just he's like a zombie. He actually has the power to save and transform. This is the God that we're talking about. The passage goes on, and we look a little bit more. And, and now the focus is a little bit off Saul, but it's on a, a disciple or a follower of Jesus. And his name is Ananias. And he shows up, and uh, God actually says, oh, uh, this guy Saul, uh, you got to go see him. And, and Ananias' response is very normal. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's actually come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. In other words, Ananias knows what's up. He knows that there is an order given by the high priests that they can come to Damascus and arrest all these people. And the Lord says to Ananias, go, 
This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, this is amazing, first of all, because of, yes, uh, what God does. Heals Saul, and he can see. But this conversation that happens between Saul and Ananias, how do you think that happens? It, it happens because Ananias has this living, faithful, obedient relationship with God. Like, he, one, he can have this conversation with Jesus. Like, they're praying and they're talking, and God prompts in his heart, you should go to this guy, Saul, who's here, staying here, go to him. And Ananias, in his response, is like, I'm not so sure about this. This guy's dangerous. And God responds, likewise, you go. And Ananias just goes. He's obedient. He is faithful in this. He knows because he has this living relationship with God. I mean, that's our challenge for us, this this faithful obedience. Faithful obedience occurs when you have a faithful and living relationship with Jesus, which means you're spending time with him each day. You're in a living relationship with him. I, I was saying, actually, we probably have a better relationship with our iPhone or with our Instagram than we do with Jesus. And we spend a lot more time. I mean, if you look at your screen time with uh, report, I'm sure it's a lot higher than your time with Jesus talking with him. Like, we might have a much stronger relationship with our work or with uh, our responsibilities or with Netflix. But, but with Jesus, the guy who can transform people's lives, like, what kind of living relationship with that? I, I think all of us, part of us, we all want this thing like, oh, yeah, I want Jesus to help me. Uh, I want Jesus to, to help me in my life. And that's where our prayer is life. Oh, help me in my exam. Oh, help me, help me in my, my, my friendships. Or, or help me in this situation. But our prayer is like, actually, God, what, what do you want from me? What do you want to do in my life? Actually, God, can you, can you use me for something great? Can you prepare me to be used by you for something more? God, can you do everything, all the challenges in my life, give them to me so that I can be used by you for something because that's what I want my life to be about. That's, that's this faithful obedience. Because faithful obedience produces courage to act. It's what gives us the ability to act when the hard times come. When you're learning and you're spending time with God each day, when the difficult situations come, you'll be ready to ask. You'll be ready to move. And for us, it's learning how to pray in that same kind of way. This guy, um, Dag Hammarskjöld. Um, he, is actually, he was actually the former Secretary General of the United Nations, which is a massive, I mean, that's a, that's a massive role. I always wondered, how do these people end up in these positions, right? Like, um, maybe you know in your workplace, it's you know someone who knows someone who gets that job, right? Like, how do you end up the Secretary General of the UN? Like, that's a pretty big deal. Like, what do you study to get to that point? Um, actually, he was a Swedish diplomat, um, and he was working there. And, but actually, a prayer that he had for many years was for God to give him a life-defining task. Like this, this moment where God says, this is what you're here to do. This is what you are here to, to be responsible for. I don't think he knew that was going to be in UN. It wasn't about being something so, so high-powered. But he's like, God, use me in such a way that it changes things. Like, is that your prayer? I, I think sometimes our prayers are too small. Like we're just praying, oh, just, just help me through the day. God, let me get home on time. God, let it rain or let it be sunny tomorrow. Like, those are nothing wrong with those prayers. Those are great prayers. But what if something in our heart, our prayer, was actually, God, let my life be used for you in, in such a way that your name is glorified more. God, prepare me in my life to do that. Like, parents, is this how you pray for your kids? God, let my, let my son or daughter be used for you in a life-defining way. Because I don't know about you, but I like to pray my, for my kids in a very safe way. God, let my kids be safe. Don't let them fall down. Let them not be sick. Let them have a good and stable career so that they will be happy and they can take care of me when I'm old. I mean, they are relatively selfish prayers. But I don't, I don't know if I have that faith where I really say, God, actually, let my child be used by you powerfully and awesomely. But at the same time, 
there's part of you that says, yeah, I would have been great if my parents prayed that for me because actually I understand how much that changes my life. So this guy, this, this guy's story, so he actually ends up being the Secretary General in 1953. And around the 1950s, that's when a lot of these countries were now starting to be, find their independence from colonialism. Like they're trying to say, we, we want to be part of the UN. We want to be part of this organization. And there's this tension between the colonial existing powers and these new places. And the world is going through tremendous change at this time. And actually, um, DAG, Secretary General, ended up being a champion for these people. Because part of him was this strong voice where saying, well, actually, you know what? Um, God, Jesus had a heart for the poor, for the underdog, for the marginalized, for the oppressed. And he was a champion for those people. In the same way where he was as Secretary General of the UN, he felt that he had a responsibility to be a champion for these people as well. I mean, that transformed the societies and those places at the time. It actually ended up opening up Christianity to be engaged in those places in different ways. You understand, right? You start realizing, actually, God can use us in amazing ways if we are ready and we've been faithfully obedient up to that point. And I show something in the Bible because he has this living relation with God. And when the moment was right, God said, no, nope, I'm choosing you to go. He didn't, he didn't say, he didn't send someone else, right? He said, oh, Peter, you know, Peter, you're good at everything. Peter, you go and pray. He doesn't find these people. He finds Ananias. Like, it's, hey, you, you show up, you go. I think for us, it's those moments that start to make us think, actually, God, in my relationship with you, I, I have seen you as too small. I, I'm not desiring the transformation that you want to do in my life deep enough. At the same time, I am not faithfully obedient to you enough. I, do you understand? God, God wants to use you in, in your schools, in your university, in your workplaces, you know, to be instruments of prayer, of care, of, of life. You know, you're praying for your classmates to really know the love of Jesus. You know, praying for your students, praying for your friends, for your colleagues. And I know it's really hard. So I know we all really feel really hard to know how to witness to them. So why don't you start by praying for them, really saying, God, actually, really, you are the best. Transform this person's life. How many, how many broken marriages do we have to hear about? How many, how many cases of abuse do we have to hear about? How many, how many things do we have to hear about knife crime before we really start praying for God to bring healing to these family and to these people to really see the transformation that needs to happen in this world? The passage goes on in Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 19 to 28. Saul spent several days with disciples in Damascus. So check this out, right? He gets this order from the high priest. So he has this letter still with him saying, I can go there and kill, I can go arrest these people. Actually, if I have to kill some of them along the way, that's probably going to be overlooked as well. And now here he is. Actually, I'm hanging out with the disciples in Damascus, and now I'm preaching in synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked him, wait, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? Wait, and hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? And yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, this, this guy comes here, his intention is to kill and arrest and instead, he is putting his life on the line to proclaim Jesus. What a transformation, right? When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Smart thinking, right? Really. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fiercely in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. What you get in this picture is that all those people there, like the disciples, Saul, the apostles, Barnabas, all these people were serious about their faith. Like, they knew Jesus is real. They knew what they're doing here. That is because Jesus is real. You know, the transformation there, that's, that's why they live the way they do. They're serious. Their faith is serious. It doesn't mean it wasn't fun or miraculous or amazing. It doesn't mean that there was just hardship all the time. But they were serious about it. It was not just a comfortable middle-class kind of faith. They were seriously desiring for people to be changed and transformed. I mean, they're living under the Roman Empire, under the Jewish rule in this sub-quarter of this place. You want to talk about a hopeless situation where you don't feel like you can really pray to make a change. 
Their, their, their religion, their relationship with Christ was so real, but the number of followers was still so small, but they would see amazing transformation. They would see amazing numbers of people coming to receive and believe. I mean, for us, it's like, well, actually, if we think it's hard here, it's, it's not. But our, our, we're so comfortable, we're so blind that we lose sight of actually the world around us is burning, but we are still not waking up to be serious about our faith or to pray or to really cry out to God for this. See, a serious faith prepares for God to use you. It gets you ready for that. It's learning how to actually be serious about what it is that we believe. William Tyndale, um, he's famous because actually he was involved in translating the Bible into English. I don't know if you knew this, but it used to be illegal to have a Bible in English. Like, if they found you translating the Bible into English, you would be killed. Like, that was the punishment. You die. Which is really funny because we have so many translations of the Bible now, and we take for granted that the Bible is in English because we're like, it's always been in English. For the King James Bible is what it was written in originally, right? Like, I mean, you have to understand in the, 14, in the 1400s, if you were caught translating the Bible, the constitutions of Oxford forbade anyone translating or reading a part of the Bible in the language of the people. Like, it was not allowed. And this guy, William Tyndale, in his studying in this, as a Reformation employee, he was like, I don't think this is right. Actually, I think it's important that everyone reads the Bible. In fact, it is so vital. In fact, he says, Christ wishes his mysteries to be published as widely as possible. I would wish even all women to read the gospel and the epistles of St. Paul. And I wish that they were translated into all languages of all Christian people, and that they might be read and known, not merely by the Scotch and the Irish, but even by the Turks and the Saracens. Like, this guy had such passion. It's like, actually, it shouldn't just be translating English. It should be translating to every language because everyone should read this because Jesus is so real and so amazing. Like, he does this, and he starts translating the Bible, and they're like, you can't do that. So he runs away. He goes to Germany. I'm like, I translate it here. They're okay here. Um, you know, and eventually he comes back, and it's not finished yet. And he gets caught. And they're like, yeah, we've been waiting to arrest you because now we're going to kill you. And the death was by strangling and then by fire, just in case the strangling didn't work. And before they were strangling him, just before he strangled, he's famous for this because he shouts out, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. That, that's his final prayer. Lord, open the kings of England's eyes. I don't know about you, but if I'm about to be killed by strangling, that's probably not going to be my prayer. My prayer will be like, you, I, y'all, everyone here can just burn it. Uh, anyways, um, you know, there's this anger that I would have. But here his, his heart's desire is still this. God, will you open the king's eyes? because your word should be known by all. Three years later, the king actually changes his mind and says, you know what? Yeah, I think the Bible should be translated into English. I think that's a good idea. Like, how, how incredible is that? We can look back and think, oh, wow, that's amazing, three years from now. But, but for us, where we stand right now, we can't see one year ahead. You understand our prayers now can change the future just because we don't know what the future is. Actually, we're just praying, God, make these things happen. Like, why aren't we praying, God, open President Xi's eyes so that the churches can flourish there. God, open up, you know, Jeremy Hunt or Boris Johnson's eyes to see Jesus, how you are the true and living God. God, open the eyes of my manager or my boss or my students or the workplace or whoever's in charge of whatever area that is frustrating you to say, God, will you transform that? Open their eyes. Our God is amazing. There's something really beautiful about investing in work that you might not see while you're alive. I, this is how I approach ministry, actually. I, 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 I'm blessed because actually we got to see our church grow while I'm alive. But my hope is that actually I want the best stuff to come after I'm dead. You know, I want God to really like overflow, you know, his work among the people here after I'm dead. Because you just want to keep knowing God's still working. It changes your perspective because you can then invest all your heart and soul into this and not be worried about the instant results that you get in the here and now. Because you're trusting in God to do his work in the long run. This part of the story ends with uh, verse 31. It says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. 
It's an amazing picture because actually at this point, then suddenly the church has peace. And I think by peace, it doesn't mean that the persecution stops, but it means that something at that moment, there was such a powerful movement among the Holy Spirit that people were just growing. The word was being spread, that you saw the power of the Holy Spirit at work. I think for us here in this time now, it's us also really believing that the Holy Spirit can work in powerful and amazing ways. The last story I want to share is about this guy, Johnny Lee Clary, who was um, a former KKK leader. And he has an amazing and powerful testimony because he hated um, black people. Uh, He was raised uh, Catholic, but his father uh, really ingrained racism into his heart. So not the love of Jesus kind of Catholicism, but the white people are the most important people in the world. Um, And so actually, he hated black people minorities. And by the age of 14, he had joined gangs, and he joined the Ku Klux Klan, which is a white supremacist group most famous in the U.S. for lynching, finding black people, taking them, putting a noose around their neck and hanging them, or putting burning crosses on on, on their lawns. Um, threatening them, attacking them, beating them up in the streets. It was all fine. In fact, this is what he did. He would find them. He would beat them up. He would harass them. In fact, he became so good that he became the head of the KKK, um, the imperial wizard of the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, If you can ever think of a more kind of like crazy naming session for the Ku Klux Klan, you're like, a lot of of male testosterone in their naming here. Anyways, um, now... He actually ended up meeting this guy called Wade Watts, the Reverend Wade Watts, um, a black guy. Um, and the testimony ends up with actually these two becoming kind of friends. Um, but they didn't get to watch this in the morning service, but I want to roll this clip now. So if you can hit the lights for me. Uh, this is a bit of the... This is an interview, actually, with um, Johnny Lee Clary uh, when he grew, later on in his life. But he's talking about his conversation with Wade Watts. <laughs> In 79, I think you would have been about 22, you went to a radio debate to the Reverend Wade Watts, Watts. who uh, was the state leader of the National Association for the Advancement of Colour People, who'd worked with Martin Luther King. And when you got to this debate, he held out his hand for you to shake. Yes, he did. Did you hesitate? I, I, he caught me off guard. See, I'm expecting this black militant to come in with a great big afro this big and an and a African dashiki on with bones hanging around it and a button on that says, I hate honkies and death to crackers, you know, all that stuff. And I figured he'd have on you a black... You seriously thought that? Yeah, that's what I thought. And I thought he'd come in there carrying a boom box, blaring out the theme from Shaft. I figured he'd, he'd, uh, he'd flash the switchblade at me and go, black is beautiful, honky. I'm going to kill all you white devils, you know. And that's what I thought I was going to see. And so when the door opened up and in came Reverend... Reverend Wade Watts, and he's wearing a suit and a tie, and he's carrying a Bible, and he walks up and he puts his hand out to me. He goes, hello there, Mr. Clare. I'm Reverend Wade Watts. I just want to tell you, I love you, and Jesus loves you. And I mean, I'm shocked, you know. And then he puts his hand out, and I'm shaking his hand without thinking, because this wasn't what I was expecting. Then I realized I just broke a clan rule, and I jerked my hand back, you know. And I started looking at my hand, which he saw that, and that met, was met as an insult. The clan rule book says, the physical touch of a non-white is pollution. And I thought, I just shook hands with a black person, and he sees me looking at my hand. He goes, don't worry, Johnny, it don't come off. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, I start calling him names. I go, you no good, sorry, bleep, 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 you mother this, you this, you that. And he looked at me, he goes, God bless you, Johnny. He says, I, I, you can't do enough to me to make me hate you. I'm going to love you, and I'm going to pray for you whether you like it or not. And I didn't know how to deal with that. I had never had that happen to me before. A few years later, you burnt down his church, didn't you? Set fire to his church. See, he had, what happened was we started off going by his house, calling him names. We got no response. Threw trash all over his lawn, got no response. Uh, we uh, put, showed up with our sheets and hoods and stood out there in his yard. Said, get on out here, boy. We got something for you. And he comes outside and he goes, boys, Halloween's four more months away. I got no trick-or-treat in here for you. Come back in October. And he goes back in the house. That's a bright man. Yeah. And, and, I mean, I didn't know how to deal with this. And so the clan goes, you got any more bright ideas? I said, I don't know. I said, I'll tell you what we'll do. So we burned a cross across the street from his house. He came outside and asked us if we needed hot dogs and marshmallows for our barbecue, you know. So finally, I said, I'm tired of messing with him. And we set fire to his church. And they put the fire out before the church was destroyed. And I remember I called him up and disguised my voice. And I said, hey, boy, you better be afraid. 
we're coming to get you, boy. You don't know who we are, but we know who you are. And he goes, hello, Johnny. And all that stuff. He goes, a man like you takes the time to call me. I'm so honored. And all that stuff. He goes, let me do something to you. He goes, dear Lord, please forgive Johnny for being so stupid. He doesn't mean to be so honored. He's a good boy trying to get out somewhere. In there. And I hung up the phone on him. I said, how dare him. And so the funniest thing that happened with him, though, is uh, I didn't know what to do. And I was at my ropes in. And one day we, we was watching him, and he went into a restaurant. So we got a bunch of us together and about 30 of us went in there and surrounded him and he had this chicken there on the table at the restaurant and I walked up and I said hey boy this restaurant's for white people only we don't want you here I said so I'm going to make you a promise I said I promise you we're going to do the same thing to you that you do to that chicken so you think real hard before you touch that chicken so he looked at me and looked at the clan then he picked up the chicken and he kissed it and, and when he kissed the chicken the whole restaurant after just like y'all did they all start laughing you know and everything and, and I looked up, and even the clan was laughing. <laughs> you got to admit, that was funny. I said, every one of you outside, I'm outside, and they're doubled over laughing. I'm going, you guys are going to get suspended and lose your robe for two weeks. I said, I'm getting tired of this. And I'm hollering at them and yelling. They're laughing. I heard a horn honking, and Reverend Watson driving off going, bye, Johnny. You know, and stuff. And, and that's how he chose. That's how one old black, we never bothered him again. And that's how one old black man defeated the entire Ku Klux Klan. Because he used this instead of brawn. And he used this, too, a very brave so, uh, the testimony of uh, Johnny Lee Claire is really powerful and really interesting, but actually, to me, it is, um, it is the, uh, sorry, don't want to watch this again. Um, it's, it's the story of Wade Watts that's uh, probably more interesting for me. Um, this, this guy, actually, when he was a, when he was a kid, uh, he had, to, he, he had a white friend, and he, went to, he was invited to their house to eat dinner. So they were playing. They said, oh, why are you coming to have dinner? And uh, when they went inside the house, they had two plates there, but it was for uh, the mom and, and the white kid. And they said, oh, you have to eat outside because you know you're black. So he went out back, and uh, he was eating, uh, and there was a dog out there, um, their dog, and the dog kept just trying to get him and just trying to attack him. So he's trying to eat and trying to keep this dog away from him. And the, the, boy, the other boy comes out and says, oh, the dog's mad because you're eating off his bowl. And it's one of those things where you start to understand, like, this is, he's just a little boy there. But he's had to endure racism from when he's a little kid. But, but he ends up like this. Like, so full of love still towards a white man just harassing him, burning down his church, showing up outside of his, trying to threaten him. And you begin to understand, like, the love of Jesus is, is so good and so powerful the power of the Holy Spirit is what gives um, Wade Watts the ability to actually even deal with this kind of situation. That you really have to begin to understand, we, we underestimate how powerful God is in even transforming institutional racism. What happens with John E. Lee Clary is actually, um, he ends up reading the Bible, reads Luke 15, gets so convicted, realizes he's a prodigal son, that he becomes a Christian. He actually ends up going to Wade Watts, and uh, Wade Watts takes him under his wing. He actually ends up uh, mentoring him, and he follows him around, goes with him everywhere, uh, learns how to preach from him, uh, gets baptized, and gets uh, ordained into his ministry, ends up becoming a, uh, the first uh, ex-KKK white leader of a black Pentecostal church. I mean, that's, that's where it ends up. It's, it's fantastic because you suddenly see, wow, our, our God is amazing. Like, our, our God is so good. Actually, Johnny Lee Clary then worked for the FBI to help them understand how to deal with uh, radicalization or how the white supremacists try to get people um, until uh, later he, he passed away in 2014. But you start realizing, man, we, we underestimate God, what he can do, what he wants to do, what he can do through our lives. I don't think Wade, Wade Watts... I think he, he had, his greatest heart's desire was that this guy, Johnny, would become a believer. I don't think he ever imagined that he'd end up having to be his mentor and then watching him actually even develop into someone with so much love for black people and other minorities. There's one thing where we think it can just be washed out, but here you see him completely transformed. For us... You understand what I'm trying to get at, right? Like, as, as Christians, it's not just a title. We are children of faith. We, we need to 
be more faithfully obedient. We need to be more serious about our faith. We need to see some of these people in the past and how much God has done in their lives and realize actually he can do equally as much and maybe more. And we want him to do more, not just in our lives, but in the lives of the people around us. Our last thing is to really say that actually we need to be full of faith, absolutely and totally faithful, seeing what God can do in us. Like, I want to change the way I pray. Like, not just a tossed-away prayer here and there. You know, if you pray at your meals, you know, if you just faithfully pray at your meals, just pray for the people in your life at your meals that are annoying you at the moment that you're thinking about on that day. Just say, God, actually, will you pour out your blessing upon them? God, will you transform their lives so they just know how good you are? You know, as you do that in your life, you have this amazing opportunity to say, actually, God, I really believe that you are working. The way you will treat them will be different. The way you will just think, because we know that our God is so good and that we have been saved and transformed in that same way. The other thing is just starting to say, actually, God, I just need to be more serious about my relationship with you. I can't just pass you off all the time, just expect you to be there when I call, but actually, I'm serious about you. This thing that we have, God, it's serious. You love me with this serious ferocity. I want to love you in that same way. I want to love you too. Let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, you really do transform people. You completely overhaul people's lives in such miraculous and powerful and unbelievable ways. It is just so wonderful, Lord. God, and we admit that actually sometimes we are just so caught up in our own sort of middle-class mediocrity that we forget who it is that we worship, the true and living God, that there is none like you. So God, we, we come before you now and we repent. You know, we say we're so sorry. Yeah, It's not just that we take you for granted, it's that we don't believe in you. We don't believe in what you can and what you are doing. So Lord, as we come before you now, will you forgive us? Will you instead open up our hearts and our soul and our mind just to be so much more eager to receive from you, to be used by you? Will you excite us each day? And even if we're not excited, that we are steady in our walk with you. God, you are so good. We want to worship you now. We want to rest and dwell in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you come to worship, um, as you respond in song, you know, as the Lord's speaking to you, as he's ministering to you, as, as he's uh, speaking to your heart, you know, really use this time to talk with him. If you feel compelled to pray for someone or to share a word with someone, just be, feel free to do that. And if you feel like there's also a word that you want to share with the congregation, just come speak to me and just tell me about it. And, um, it's very open and for you also just to be able to share that with us as well. Let's come and worship.